My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post-Cred Pod. This week, we've got episode three of Loki. Eric, can you believe we're halfway done with Loki? It feels like it literally just started. I feel like you, you ask me this every time we talk about a new show. Once we get to the halfway but, point, you're always like, can you believe it? No, yes, I mean, I most, this, no, most of these shows aren't six episodes, just the last two Marvel ones. This is how time works, Brandon. It goes forward. <laughs> um, listen. Well, listen, not according, not according to TVA, actually. It's right. It's funny that you mentioned uh, that most shows aren't six episodes long, because I actually have a point that I'm going to make about that on this podcast. But before we get started, let me just say that if you soldiered through last week's show with me sounding like I was recording from the year 1983, then God bless you because you are a trooper. Um, blame Zoom at Zoom. It is literally 100% their fault. And <laughs> if it doesn't work this week now, like, all right, so y'all had to like put up with my terrible sounding voice just once, right? I have to edit the podcast. So I had to listen to that shit, getting increasingly angry once it occurred to me that the whole show was fucked. So if this week doesn't work, I'm, I'm going to lose my shit a bit. <laughs> but other than that, shout out to y'all for trying to push through that. Because if it bothered you, it bothered me twice as much. Throw Eric some love for his hard work and his persistence. All right. At Eric Italiano, right? I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I reached out to Zoom and they hit me with the old delete and re-download the app. I also updated my Zoom as well. So hopefully that works. But I don't know how many people out there that tune in actually know me in real life i'm an affable guy but i've got a temper buried in there so you just got to picture me like sitting at my macbook ready to fight myself because of the terrible quality of this of this podcast last week it was driving me nuts but we should be all, all fixed now perfect so if we are indeed all fixed how about we hop into the news let's get after starting it, it off Transformers Rise of the Beasts based on the Beast Wars cartoon from the 1990s. It is direct, <clears throat> excuse me, it's directed by Stephen Capel Jr., who did Creed 2. It's set in 1994 in Brooklyn and Peru. It's going to include both Autobots and Decepticons, but the ter- the Terracons are the main villains of the film with the Maximals and the Predacons also being introduced as well. And on top of that, it is a different continuity than Bumblebee. So a lot going on with Paramount trying to revive the Transformers franchise. Yeah, I mean, I checked out on the franchise after maybe the second or third one. But if there's a way to peak interest in this, I think that doing Beast Wars is it. I distinctly remember that being one of the cartoons that I watched growing up. It is what introduced me to Transformers. They obviously know this because they're setting it in the 90s. So they're making it clear who their demo is. Um, the I, I haven't seen I haven't seen Creed one. Forget Creed oh, two. Creed one's real good. So uh, what what are we dealing with here with uh, Capel Junior? I know you've tossed out his name to direct Superman, perhaps right? He, he was on one the, the short list that was reported by the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, Creed two, I definitely think is a step down from Creed one, but still very very enjoyable film overall. I believe. Capel Jr. is the actually you know what let me check this before I actually I I say that because I don't want to look like an idiot 
which I do too often already. So if I can avoid looking like an idiot for one split second, I'm going to do that. Let me see. Yeah, so he did he did Creed 2. He's done a couple episodes of Grown-ish. Um, he did a movie called The Land, which was, you know, decent. Not not spectacular, but certainly had a good, like, emotional core. So, you know, I, I think he, he's a decent director. I'm not a big Transformers guy, but I will say Paramount always kept their budgets in check. The most expensive one was $210 million. So, <laughs> yeah, which, you know, is still supersized. But when you're talking about Marvel, DC, James Bond, Star Wars, Fast and Furious, you know, that that's actually peanuts compared to their most expensive outing. So as long as they keep budgets in check and have the quality of Bumblebee, uh, you know, they can they can revive it, I think, as like a, a mid-major franchise, maybe not the billion-dollar beast that it used to be. Set to star Anthony Ramos uh, from In the Heist and Dominique Fishback, who I only know as Fred Hampton's girlfriend in Judas and the Black Messiah. And she um, was the only good part of Project Power, too. Oh, that movie. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, okay. Yeah, so... I think that this is definitely an interesting route to take it. I like that they're sort of clearing house in terms of timeline, characters, directors, stars, um, robots that are involved. The Beast Wars. <laughs> I don't know. Do you like recall these? Like they no, never watched it. They transform into it. robotic animals. <laughs> I mean, that that does sound pretty cool. I, I like Transformers One, and then was kind of out. And I really excuse me, like Bumblebee quite a bit too. But yeah, like I'm, I'm down for another smash them up you know, CGI robot. And and like if they make it good, the Transformers 1, both as a film and the CGI, remarkably hold up. It's yeah, actually I like Transformers pe- 1. People like, like the dump on Bay and rightfully so at times, but I do feel like that film holds up. They just started to get too high on their own supply, which is what Bay does in general. Yeah. So we shall see. Box office wise, do you think that this has billion dollar potential or? No, I, I think and I tweeted about this recently. I think if they, they continue to, to do the quality of Bumblebee, I still think they're not going to return to their one billion dollar perch uh, from you know a decade ago. But there, I think there's no reason as long as they're making good movies with interesting uh, leads. There's no reason why this can't be a really solid like 450 million to 650 million dollar franchise like the MonsterVerse. So that's what I'm expecting. But enough about Transformers because they haven't even come out with a new movie in a while. Let's go on to the Flash set in the DC universe. Uh, we got our first set of the Flash set photos. We got our first look at Keaton's gray-haired Bruce Wayne. We got the first look at Sasha Cali as Supergirl in costume. Both were you know like grainy pictures, but look kind of cool. And Keaton redonning the, the cape and cow, very, very cool for many reasons. I'm going to let our resident expert of Batman take that one. So, Eric, what does this mean to you as, as you know, I love the original Tim Burton ones, but when it comes to Batman, you're the guy. First of all, I, I love how you just gave me this role on our show. I will sure. gladly take it with pride. Uh, let me also say that while I've yet to see her act in anything, I am a huge fan of Sasha Cali. Just a fan take that for what it is it I just actually, looked good if nothing else i haven't seen her act either yes, but that looked cool they did um <laughs> uh what the fuck was i saying because now i got all sidetracked keaton baby about sasha cali um so i i actually rewatched the batman films this week just because it had been some time and because of all this and not so much about that film specifically but how that sort of represents the dawn of the 
you know, there was Jaws was the first modern blockbuster and Superman was the first modern superhero film. But I think that Batman is the first time that those two things were combined. Right. And now here we are 30 years later. And what Batman started is perhaps the defining genre in film itself. So what my main takeaway is that Keaton's return is both shocking, but it also represents something of a eventuality. You know, this is a guy who famously turned down what was reportedly $15 million to star in the third. Back in 1990s money. People. Yeah, yeah, right. So if you if you expand that to what it would, would be worth today, you know, that's a that's a lot of dough. Up until five years ago, even nobody would have ever thought that he would return to this role. But the nature of the comic book film landscape is such that quite literally anything is narratively possible now and that to me is fascinating we we've taken a iconic actor who is returning to a role that defined the character for a generation of fans you know if you were i i hadn't my brain knew this but i hadn't really realized the batman movie theme songs are the same theme song from the cartoon i hadn't like put that together really so if you think about how influential that cartoon was on me you get a character and an actor that were definitive for millions of people. So now he's back in that role. And that is inherently cool from what we've heard. It's going to, again, this isn't confirmed, but he's going to be going forward in sort of a Nick Fury esque overseeing team leading role. I think Keaton at his age is perfect for that. I think a genuine old man, Bruce Wayne is something that hasn't really been done on film before. Affleck was sort of, middle-aged Bruce Wayne, but when we're talking, th this is like Batman beyond age Bruce Wayne. <laughs> and I think that that's an element of the character where his mind is still as sharp as it ever was, but his body holds him back. That makes Bruce, that devastates Bruce Wayne. As the expert here, trust me what I say, that is devastating to him. So exploring that and seeing how he deals with that by recruiting the Flash or a new Batman, et cetera, et cetera, opens the doors to potential Batman stories and Batman themes that we haven't seen. And of course, Keaton is just that dude. And I just want to throw this out there now that I looked it up. In 1993, $15 million would have equaled $27.94 million in 2021 money. Yeah. So yeah. pretty fucking serious, all yeah. things considered. Universal has reportedly approached Steven Spielberg about rebooting Jaws, which of course he shot down. And as he should, because why remake a perfect film? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, I wanted to let you have the floor for this one because I feel like you're more of a Spielberg guy than I am. He's tribe, no? Yeah, he's tribe. So he's your team. I Are you saying on you're on bond. the opposite team? No, well, I, I mean, I guess... Anti-tribe like, team. I, I, I guess if, like, Batman is... If if I'm the Batman guy... You're, I'm the Star Wars guy. You're the Jewish guy. I, that makes sense in a roundabout offensive way, and I'll take it. Yeah, I mean, listen, Spielberg, you you rewatch uh, Spielberg today, uh, Jaws today, 1975, which invented the summer blockbuster movie season. And not only, of course, is it a great film, but you recognize, holy shit, every decision this guy makes as a director is the right one. It's so creative, so intelligent. Now, of course, there were a ton of crappy sequels that Spielberg wasn't involved in, but I, I'm glad that he is making sure that no one's going to reboot it because there's simply no need to. It is a, a perfect film that should be left to exist in perpetuity as this 
time capsule nexus point for blockbuster populist cinema. And I think that 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 is the take, right? That is the correct take. But to which I will posit this. Let's say you showed that film to a 13-year-old today, right? Would they be scared? No, but just show them the Maggers on any a number of, of the other shark movies that are out over the last 25 so, but years. Don't it's a genre you, that has consistency. So, but don't you think that that technically qualifies as a barrier of enjoyment for an entire generation of fans? If they, let me put it like this. This film, Jaws, was re-released in the summer of 1979. So my mom was 18 and she saw it for the first time because she was too young the first time it came out. And she was so scared at 18 that she slept in her parents' bed that night. <laughs> and that is, I mean, Jaws was a terror. It was a pop populist film, but it was scary. I mean, I remember as a kid being scared. So unless you're showing this to your child when they're, I don't know, six, seven, eight, once they become self-aware of CGI and effects and what looks real in film and what doesn't, I think that Jaws could lose its all of its punching power and therefore it's defining trait. I think if a 13 year old likes good movies, they'll still like Jaws, even if they aren't necessarily terrified, because it is such a masterclass in building and sustaining tension and suspense and then capitalizing at the right moments to strike at an audience's height of anticipation that I still think they'll be like, that was good, even if I, you know, the effects didn't grab me. And it's fascinating. And perhaps you can speak to this. How does Spielberg have the final say now, 40 plus years after the first one came out, but that wasn't the case when they churned out Jaws 2 and Jaws 3. And I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's similar to how how he also has final say on Jurassic World. It might be it might be talent relations, it might be contractual. I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but you okay. know, Spielberg been doing that bang. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got a new trailer for the Suicide Squad. Eric, in my opinion, this was a much better trailer yep. than the original. Stock but as, is going up. But as my brother reminded me. Before Guardians of the Galaxy hit theaters, those trailers were very mad. I was like, this looks like a, you know, a Beast Squad Avengers. This looks like a, a crappy offshoot with characters I don't know. I was very meh, like going to see it because it's Marvel. And then I was blown away. And my brother was right to point that out because even though the first Suicide Squad trailer wasn't great and this one's a lot better, I bet in the theater and from whispers that I've heard, it's going to be knock your socks off. Well, and here's what I find promising about these that they're very light on plot and usually like yes they're, they're gonna round up a team and they've got to go deal with this starfish-esque thing but the ins and outs of that are a completely blank slate and the number one complaint these days the trailer business is that they reveal too much so as i said i i, I think i said this when the first one dropped it's also rated r so a lot of the funniest lines or best scenes are probably not suitable yeah. for marketing and the fact that they aren't really letting you in on the story yes i do think that while i am not blown away by this trailer like i was the first time i saw the trailer for man of steel shout out um i'm very good at staying on brand yeah gotta stay consistent man I like um, that. people know what they're getting i think that the signs are promising i think that the film making it clear that Idris Elba's the lead is a smart move. I think that he is one of the most watchable movie stars we have. And he's been that way since he really came up in the last 10 or so years. His character is a badass. This trailer confirmed that Bloodsport is in jail for hospitalizing Superman with a kryptonite bullet. 
which is pretty, pretty cool, which, which is gangster as hell. Yeah. Now, and I like that they're sort of connecting it to the larger DCU canon, even though said canon is a fucking disaster right now. <laughs> so I think that and. You know, if they're using Harley Quinn as more of a supporting comedic relief where the drama or the advancement of the plot doesn't rely on her, I think that allows the character to really more not round into her true form, but allows her to do what she does best. Right. And that's and that's fuck around. You know, Birds of Prey was good, good bordering on in contrast to the rest of the DCU, great. But it was like a Harley Quinn emotional journey. That is, while enjoyable, that's not what the character was created for. She was created to raise hell. And that looks like what she's going to be doing in this. I'll leave it at this and then we'll move on. I interviewed John Cena for Observer.com. You did. Check that out. Thank you, buddy. And he basically said, nobody is prepared for what the Suicide Squad is. He says everyone has like an opinion and perception and no one is actually ready for what the actual final product is. So that to me is like, what the hell are we getting into? I'm excited. Yeah. All right. Let's move into our quick hitters. West Side Story star Rachel Ziegler has been cast in Disney's live action Snow White film. Obviously, West Side Story hasn't come out yet, but she seems like an absolute talent from all the videos I've seen. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think she's only, what, 19 or 20? And to start off her her career with West Side Story, Shazam 2, and Snow White is a fucking preposterous flex. Spielberg, DC, Disney, right off the bat. An absurd flex. Uh, Willem Dafoe and Christoph Waltz will co-star in Dead for a Dollar. The story follows Max Borland, played by Waltz, a famed bounty hunter, hired to find and return Rachel Price, the politically progressive wife of Nathan Price, a successful Santa Fe businessman. I mean, we know Waltz can play a bounty hunter, and we know Willem Dafoe is the wildest guy out there. More movies like this, please. Please. Two stars, old school vibe, all about this. By the way, just go watch the Sisters Brothers from like 2018. Or oh, was that That's good? It. Is it good? It's good. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Yeah. I'm definitely going to watch that. John C. I've always, Riley and Joaquin. I've always wanted to, but I, the reviews have always been kind of eh, eh, eh. So I oh, think it's pretty good overall. I will take your word for it. And my boy, Jake G. Yeah. And and I think Riz Ahmed's in it for a second, too. Elizabeth Olsen reveals that she had, she had auditioned for the role of Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones. She said, quote, I auditioned for the assistant to for the assistant to the casting director in a small room in New York. I read the Khaleesi speech when she comes out of the fire. It was awful. I didn't get a callback. As we know, Elizabeth Olsen, very talented actress, has crushed it in many things. But you know, Amelia Clark was a very good Daenerys Targaryen. I think that's the right call. Well, first thing first, she's only 32 now. Game of Thrones came out in 2011, which meant this probably happened in 2010. She was what, 20 years old? Yeah, she's I a mean, baby. Good lord. Second of all, as I put in a tweet of ours, it all worked out for in the end because she eventually got to play an insanely powerful and beautiful woman with magic powers who slowly but surely slips into madness following the loss of various loved ones. (laughs) You clever son of a bitch. So it all worked out in the end. Yeah, so she played Khaleesi. Right, exactly. They just slapped a different brand name on it. Ginger-haired Khaleesi. (laughs) <laughs> and then finally, before we move on to Loki, I just want to quickly touch on one of our patented bro crushes here at Post Cred Pod, and that is Jake Gyllenhaal. This is an actor who, after Prince of Persia flopped, became very curative and very selective as an actor about the projects he would do, and essentially became a leading character actor, not a traditional leading man. He's a very esoteric well, kind of guy. 
I think that's a. Sh- I think that that's you seeing him how you want to see him. I don't I, think that that's necessarily the case. I don't know. I think you go back and look at his choices, and, and you see someone who's far more interested in unique, singular projects than being a leading traditional Hollywood man. You know, in in the vein of, yeah. of yes, movie stars of yore. But in the last two or three years, if you go check his IMDb page, he has roughly a dozen either pre-production or announced titles that he has joined it seems that all that selective nature has gone out the window and let me just add on a handful of them a disproportionate amount of them relative to his past choices seem to be like action thrillers yeah it's like very mark mark Wahlbergian in a way and I put out the question, like, why has he very suddenly on a dime transformed? And a lot of people made funny responses. A lot of people said money. which Well, because I, think- I was going to tweet back because he's decided to bless us. That's why. <laughs> why like, who, who, who are you to complain about such a thing? Give me all the Jake well, G. Possible. The reason I complain is because I would say of the, those like 12 or so movies, I would say 10 of them sound awful. Sound like absolutely like garbage, like Mark Wahlberg now garbage movies. But the one reason that was pointed out to me he does have his own production company dating back i think about six years ago and the easiest way to get a movie produced through your own company where you're gonna you're also gonna make a little bit more money is to slap your name on it as a star as well as jake gyllenhaal and that made a ton of sense yeah, to me but very true a lot of these movies did not sound good i just hope he's not moving away to like fuck it phase i know and look powers that be since we're in the multiverse years it's not too late to cast him as batman it could be done <laughs> or at least red hood <laughs> red hood actually would be great that's, I think he's, that's I, great I think he's a little too old, but I, and I've said this for a while, because this is when he just came out where he ripped off that run of like, from like source code through like Southpaw. And it was before they casted Ben in the role and he was my pick and I'm, I'm hanging on for dear life to that one. (laughs) I think Red Hood would be cool. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, let's move on to Loki. How's that sound, Eric? Good, and this week I'm going to put in the actual theme song because it slaps. It really wah, does wah, slap. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, fire. I was just like watching the end credit, just kind of like, yeah. you know, shucking over here with the shoulders. <laughs> um, all right, episode three, Lamentis. It opens at a tropical bar where a very normal-seeming, like, Susie next door, Lady Loki, is grabbing a drink with a friend. And the peacefulness of this setting very quickly upended, Eric, as audiences are reminded that this friend is da 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 da, the TVA officer who told Lady Loki where to find the timekeepers. And in fact, we're not at a bar at all. We're actually watching Lady Loki trying to trick this TVA officer into giving her the answers to like, where are the timekeepers? How many people are guarding them? Yada, yada, yada. And it's revealed that Lady Loki needs to be looking for golden elevators in the TVA, you know, stronghold that then lead to where the timekeepers allegedly are. So Eric, to me, this was such a creative answer to our question last week. Why was she so disturbed when they found her? You know, it wasn't just a normal, like, oh, I've been abducted. She was shook out of her mind. Now we know. 
Yeah, I'd say in general, the first 15 minutes of the episode are the best, perhaps even this scene, because I found that the the rapid shifts in both tone and location and conversation go a long way in portraying like the likely horror that you would feel when being mind controlled and not having a grasp of the reality that you're in. They do a very effective job of showing what the other side of that, as they put it, mind enchantment looks like and getting that sort of point of view of not only how you would feel if it was doing it to you, but the intricacies of how Lady Loki is actually pulling it off. This isn't the vibe that they were going for. I think they were going for more shock, but I found it to be quite scary. I think it was very scary. And and I, I will say in no way, shape or form did I call it because I didn't conceptually pinpoint it. But I wrote in my notebook, why does the TVA agent feel so comfortable in a bar restaurant setting like question mark i thought that was weird later we get an answer to that in no way shape or form did i like oh that's it no but I that's just a good thing to know to me. yeah i did not even yeah that's a because I mean, that right remember there, the other guy didn't know what a fish was and this she's getting brain freeze from margaritas i'm like that's a weird dissonance yes great eye great eye i did not catch that but that like so right off the bat if you're in tune to that you already know something's up i'm like yeah this is this is a little tricky over here All right, so Lady Loki now infiltrates the TVA, but she quickly realizes her mind control magic doesn't work on the TVA agents, which is a whole question in and of itself. Uh, Nevertheless, she once again makes light work of a hapless squad of TVA cops. Then our Loki, not far behind his variant counterpart, grabs his famous blades from the TVA lockers. He begins pursuit as Lady Loki makes her way to the golden elevators. The pair then trade blows and questions before Ravona Renslayer interrupts and that she forces the pair to basically escape to the doomed planet of Lamentis One in the year 2077. And Lady Loki says this is the worst apocalypse of all. Eric, from this point, I got very Mandalorian-esque vibes from this episode in a good way in that our main characters from here on out through the rest of the entire episode basically infiltrating various strongholds and using like brute force to kind of kick their way in. And I also just very quickly thought it was worth noting that the Lamentis outworld is on the edge of Cree space. I looked that up. Oh, wow. Let me write that down, actually. Yes. And so it's some good Cree territory. And then you have a point, which I want to answer to later about like, it was a cool transition, but we're not totally on board with the look here. Well, uh, that's why I think it's funny that you brought up Mando because I had wrote down that I actually find the CGI to be quite poor. Like, I think the world itself is very cool. You're, but now you're talking about Loki right now, right? Yes. 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 Uh, I, and, and in this episode specifically, um, I thought that the CGI was quite poor. I thought Lamentous One in construction and concept was very cool, but I thought it was very apparent that the two actors were standing in front of a green screen, which makes me hope that the MCU adapts the tech that they use on Mando going forward. Now, perhaps this background was a little too complex because a lot of it is moving and on fire, et cetera, et cetera. But the CGI definitely distracted me. I agree. And I I wrote down the same thing. And I realized when they're not like interacting with their environment, when they're not running from meteors, they are 
never interacting with the environment. They are simply just walking a path. And when that happens, you can see the kind of contrast between the characters in the foreground and the background. It was definitely wonky for sure. Yeah. And it took me out of the moment just a little bit because I, I found their exchanges so great. We'll get to that in a second. Oh, yeah. But I was definitely like, what's 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 happening behind them? What what is what is all that? It was weird. Yeah. So, but again, you know, like I I'm not really an effects snob. You know, I, yeah, I don't need either. to be for, blown for away. This. But when I do feel like I feel like they're standing in front of a background, you know what I mean? When it's obvious to me, it does take me out of the moment. Now, that said, I thought that the first 15 ish minutes were the best of the show. I thought that the pacing of both the plot and the dialogue between the pair as they feel each other out. And this is something that we've pointed out about this show before has it as it has a very not in content but in terms of pacing and cadence a very sorkin-esque way about it how two characters will go back and forth and sort of uh there's a rhythm and one flow. Another. yeah there's a rhythm and flow to their quips and i find that to be very strong particularly you know as we highlighted that between loki and mobius it's the same thing here. I, I agree. And I actually have a, a point about that later. So I'm so glad that you've laid laid the groundwork for me. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> All right. So Lady Loki, who now says her name is Sylvie, and our regular Loki wander through this wasteland of Lamentis, which is about 12 hours from Apocalypse. And they're looking for a place to charge their universe hopping, timey-wimey device thing. It's called the Temp Pad. The temp pad. All right. Well, I like mine better. Universe hopping, timey wimey thing. And they are informed after, might I point out, being blasted by a woman with a space shotgun in a very funny kind of uh, rural Western modernized for this space setting uh, bit that they have to go to the train station on the edge of town to get to the arc where everyone's trying to get on to escape. Although they'll, quote, never get a ticket. Despite this warning, the Lokis use their combined talents to make their way aboard the surprisingly lavish train. In a moment of rare honesty in this discussion, they talk about their origins, particularly their mothers, and when their parents told them they were adopted. Now, Eric, I have a little bit of a, a kind of crazy theory, but one that matches along with what other people have been saying. Shoot or shoot, kid. We have been told that this is a variant of Loki, but we don't actually have any real proof of that. She she vehemently says, never call me Loki. Later, she says that's not who she is anymore. There's just a lot of anti-Loki sentiment coming from her. Now, some people in the lead up to Loki, in the promotional images that we saw of Sylvie, like in the distance, some people thought maybe she might be enchantress. I don't know, that, that might be the case. I'm wondering if, the Loki from her universe killed her parents and that she is Sylvie, like some other magical creature somehow related, but maybe not necessarily a Loki variant, despite what we're being told. I wonder. That's an interesting thing to keep your eye on because my, uh, when we get to this later, my Tony Stark shit I need explained to us is why she hates that name so much. So I definitely think that there you're onto something in that regard. I don't know if it would be going as far as she isn't one, but perhaps she shed the moniker once something happened, maybe right. one of her schemes, like maybe she was the ultimate Loki, like Lokiing as fuck, right? <laughs> But then like one of her schemes ruined her life or right. they talk about love for a bit, killed her love or something like that, where it made her loathe the very idea of Loki and the god of mischief. If she is a Loki variant, maybe she accidentally killed Thor in her world or purposely killed Thor and realized, ah, I've gone too far. This Right. Bad. Now, I will say that I feel that this is once they introduce the MacGuffin, I 
feel like the episode comes to a grinding halt. And that's not to say that I'm against episodes that don't advance the plot. But when it's about a MacGuffin that I don't care about, of course, the two main characters are going to get off the doomed planet. (laughs) them fixing the temp pad is irrelevant to me. It means nothing. So that is where I have a hang up in terms of this one. But now that said, I suppose that, and this gets back to what we talked about at the top of how this is, uh, how it's rare that TV shows are six episodes. I suppose that the best way that to look at the lulls that have been popping up in these mid-season, we saw with Falcon a bit, we saw with Wanda a bit, is not to look is not to look at them as a TV series, but to look at them as if they're a second act of the film. We need to stop looking at these as if they're traditional TV series and start considering them what they really are. And that's a somewhere in between a film TV hybrid-esque. And usually in second acts, which I would consider this to be, is when we get a lot of the character quieter moments. So in that light, this is on pace with how a general story unfolds. So I'm willing to give it leeway in that sense. That said, I still think that this episode is stripped of what has been the series' strength so far. And that's A, the dynamic between Loki and and the TVA at large, and B, the questions surrounding the TVA. I find the TVA to be the most compelling aspect of this entire show, what they do, where they come from, what they want. So effectively removing that is, I think, the biggest flaw of this week's. See, I I disagree that it grinds to a halt because I think what this does very well, and I'm going to defer to Vanity Fair's Joanna Robinson, who articulated I saw that it much tweet, better. But I, yeah, but uh, but it's but it's more gray than that. It's not that black and white as I just tried to explain. So Joanna said in the tweet, and I agree with it, TV episodes that establish character dynamics are not filler episodes, and she articulated what I was trying to say earlier this morning. Uh, in an article better better than I could. Uh, I think this is the meeting of essentially what is our two main characters and the fact that they can basically turn a getting to know you conversation into an entertaining episode that also includes action and humor is pretty impressive. They find their differences and they find their similarities. They find where each lines are drawn and they're able to essentially by the end, which we'll get to come to perhaps a more mutual understanding of one another. So I actually liked it. I'm I'm not saying I loved it. I think the the first two are still more my cup of tea. And I agree that the TVA is more interesting, but I I think this episode did a good job of what it was trying to do. I will have some criticisms later. Uh, So I I, got to disagree with you there. And I also disagree with the, with the TV as movies thing. This has been something that the last 10 years has been bandied about. Every showrunner is so popular. Yeah, but that's because of the format is different. It's it's not different. It's still a weekly TV show. Every showrunner showrunner has become so fond of being like, we just tried to make a nine hour movie. But I'm I'm saying forget about 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 the jargon bullshit. I'm talking about an actual formatting structure. If you look at each act as if they're two I mean, dude, HBO has been doing six episode limited series for like 20 years. Yeah. yeah, You know, it's this isn't necessarily new. I I think the reason that I I bring that up is because I'm trying to defend the idea of these shows slowing down (laughs) at this stage. I'm trying to make your point for you. Like, like I'm trying to say that you need to not look at like you as in the at large you, not you, Great Catsby. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That you need to look at this as if not a if not a film narrative, a film structure, a, a film's three-act arc. Still think that inherently it has to adhere to certain TV norms. Yeah. But I, but I also think that people are 
misusing the word filler or, or lull here for something that is important. Yeah. Well, filler is just what folks say when, when they're bored. That, yeah. you know, I'm bored, it's filler. It's a you lazy know? criticism. You're absolutely yeah, exactly. Right. Now, what I will say about this is that this scene where they're talking about their past and stuff is, I think, the first time as a Marvel fan that we get the true potent, like the true sense of scope and potential of what the multiverse really means and like yeah. the wild shit that we're going to get in No Way Home. Like Spider-Man's <laughs> discussing their lives together is this sort of brain-melting comic book nerdy fan that you wait for. And this scene is, I think, the first example of what the future of the MCU holds, that we see it, clearly. I, I hope we see it in this show. I hope we see yeah. other local variants. But that said... Oh, go ahead, just, just one last quick point. I did. I do think it's interesting, and I'm wondering if it's going to be a running motif or it's strictly by accident, but in the finale for WandaVision... What is love if not grief persevering? Right. We've said goodbye before. We'll say hello again. And now here we have another like beautiful exchange about the meaning of love and the differing points of view that they might have on love. I I'm thought it felt forced here, though. I thought it felt very earned. And I, I, I don't think that's but... see, no, it's very earned because there they're talking about it in the context of their relationship. Here, I actually think it works because they're not talking about anyone necessarily important to them. They're, they're talking about their isolation and their alienation. And then Loki gets drunk and tries to be prophetic in humorous sense. But I'm just curious if, if, if we're circling a thematic thread that's going to be more important than we're giving it credit for here in the early going. If yeah. in hindsight, we're going to be like, holy shit, a lot of seeds were planted. Well, since you brought up love, I do. One of my main notes from this scene is I found loki hitting on himself to be a very bizarre beast so, so that was going to be one of my questions after this episode oh Are so you we'll save up? it then okay so like i just said loki does get drunk and of course blows their fucking cover immediately resulting in him being tossed off the train breaking the universe timey-wimey jumper thing in the process uh sylvie gets off the train as well she's then explaining to loki how she does the mind enchantment magic when she reveals that in order to extract the timekeeper information from the TVA cop, she had to use memories from before she joined the TVA. Quote, she was just a regular person on Earth. Quote, this information obviously stuns Loki, given his conversations with Mobius about the organization's nature. The TVA employees, they believe they were created by the TVA to serve, you know, surface, service the timekeepers, when in fact, Lady Loki reveals that they are variant, unaware of their actual existence. Now, to me, at this point, it's not only this raises a ton of questions, but this comes back to her, her, her zinger against Loki that he works for omniscient fascists. Quote. Right. Great I mean, line. Uh, did they? You know, well, we're going to talk about it after, but this is this is a game changing pivot from what we thought we were watching in terms of the organizational structure of the TVA. Yeah, I mean, we knew that they were shady. I didn't know that it yeah. was going to go this route. And then I should just add in that the episode closes with they're trying to make their way to a bill. Like, again, the the whole guffiness of, of this one really bothered me. They're trying to get to a building so they could get to a power source to charge the tempad. And the final scene, I believe, is... I, I think they, that was the Ark taking off, not not a building. They were trying to get on the Ark to leave and... Well, and but the Ark the got there. destroyed. It, yeah, it, it did get like. destroyed. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, uh, all right. So that's how it ends. So I guess just overall thoughts on the episode. Sort of like when we went to Majapur in Falcon, it felt like a very 
let's just go somewhere cool and kind of screw around for a bit type vibe. I'm definitely annoyed that they didn't escape by the end of this one. Like the fact that them getting off of this planet is going to carry into next week for me is not ideal. Now that said, my disappointment with the lack of the plot advancement and my inherent interest in the MacGuffin, as I said, we know they're going to survive and get off. So them trying to fix this thing has no dramatic weight whatsoever. I do think that this week established two critical details that are going to propel the show as we head down the stretch. A, and they say as much, Loki and Sylvie now trust each other, or at the very least are beginning to get there. Perhaps even are on their way to something romantic. We aren't quite sure yet. And B, Loki is aware that the TVA is not what they seem. So those two factors combined, right? Their newfound trust, their potential love, and Loki now aware that the TBA is not what they told him that they were are two factors that are not only going to compel the plot and the drama forward through to the end, but are also going to inform the decisions that they both make. So while this may not have advanced the plot in a way that most may have hoped, it advanced the character's understanding of their world and the people around them. And those findings are going to more or less shape how the show ends. I, I agree. And I think if we're looking at it from a sp- like specific and literal plot point, I am assuming that because they didn't actually escape by episode's end, something very important is going to happen probably in the early going of episode four. Their actual escape may be ho-hum, may, may not, but something pivotal, pivotal is going to be involved and connected very quickly in the okay. follow-up because of that. I also thought uh, it was a very cool attempt at a one shot to en- end it. You know, one shot. It definitely, you could definitely see where the the cuts may have been hidden, but I still think it was effective. Um, director Kate Heron has cited Metropolis, Blade Runner, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and actually Teletubbies and Alien as some of the inspiration behind uh, the uh, the the series. So I thought you could see some of those in there. I also want to say Chekhov's enchantment. Why explain? specifically how the enchantment works when we've really never gotten an explanation on any character's powers almost ever, unless that's going to come into play later. You know, it's particularly Lady Loki taking over Loki's body. Are they going to run some type of like clever ploy against someone later? I I just think something is going to come back around that that is important there. Great call, yeah. All right, just a couple questions before we we hop into our our, our awards and categories. We kind of touched on it now picking up any romantic vibes between the two Lokis or just two platonic kindred spirits. I was leaning towards the former as well. It yeah. seemed a little, they were standing close to each other talking about Loki their is, stuff. is flirting with himself, which I just find, I mean, yes, she is obviously hot, but like, doesn't the knowledge that she's essentially you. But isn't that perfectly on brand for the arrogant son of a bitch that Loki is? Who could ever love me better than me, baby? Uh, I guess that's a good one. I just, I feel like it was, this is not a character that has seemed to have any sort of romantic interest in anyone before. And now they're laying on thick with the, with the. Unless we're misreading. Conversations about. It's possible we're misreading, but it seemed flirty to me. No, I have, I have flirted. I I have, as somebody who has spit game at a bar before, that's what my man was doing. Okay, I get, it, it. It doesn't matter if it's in space or in Jersey. I can Let promise us know you. at Postcred Pod whether you thought there were some sparks flying or if we're misreading it. Yeah. Okay. At Postcred Pod on Twitter. Uh, another question. So, is the TVA abducting Earth people to work for them? 
If so, how are those Earth people surviving for hundreds of years? Because that's what Lady Loki says. I know the TVA exists without outside of time, but does that change your molecular structure as a human? And two, if, if it is a multiverse situation, why are they only abducting humans? Why isn't there aliens from all across the cosmos working at the TVA? It's not just an Earth you know, uh, thing. It's, it's a everything thing. Well, that's why I say I don't think they're abducting perhaps or more like lave labor kind of like our prison system like that that's rough yeah that kind of vibe like loki so he branched off right they've already begun process of getting him to work for them perhaps at some point they wipe their mind clean and then that's just their fate that's a very good point and that's terrible for everybody yeah it also leads to the fact that tva is shady and then last question we'll go into our awards and categories is tom hiddleston as loki the best, you know, most engaging, compelling actor as character among the MCU Disney Plus shows so far? Because I think yes. Uh, Yes, and I think so for a few reasons. Uh, First and foremost, he is a naturally more complex character. He is a anti-hero. And that inherently is going to make you a more compelling watch. That is why anti-heroes exist. Um. Furthermore, I'd say that Hiddleston is, if not the best actor, perhaps the best performer of the bunch. Like he is clearly classically trained, knows how to both ham it up, dial it up, tone it back, comedy, drama, etc. And then finally, I think the world that he inhabits is the most interesting of the three because I guess you could say the same about WandaVision, but when it comes to Loki, truly, you know that the ground that you're standing on can be pulled out from beneath you at any time. The world itself is literally always changing locations, times, places, tenors, tones. So in doing that, I think that you're more on edge and therefore more compelled by what the character is doing. I agree. I I think Paul, of the three shows we've seen so far, I think Paul Bettany is probably the best Best actor. actor. Yeah. Uh But I think Hiddleston's the best for every, best character within this, uh, for everything you just mentioned. I agree completely. All right, awards and categories. Let's start it off. Infinity Gauntlet Award for the real MVP. Eric, I'm going with buddy cop vibe because whether it be Loki and Mobius or Loki and Sylvie, the show is so much more of a buddy cop adventure than the Falcon and the Winter Soldier ever was, which is what we thought we were getting. Right, great call. I kind of have the same thing. I have the chemistry between the new two leads and the actors playing them, even though if that chemistry costs cause the show to divert into some sort of weird romantic vibe that I don't get. Uh, I still think it's quite strong. And then next I have the their unsheathing blade move. You know, just like Very. Wolverine, it's just a cool motion, you know? I just, every time they do it, I'm like, fuck yeah, that looked awesome. I'm totally into it. Absolutely. All right, Thor the Dark World Award for worst performance. Eric, the whole reason why one would want magical powers is to have the ability to avoid archaic and ineffective fist fights. Yet all these friggin' mages in this episode, all they do is melee, you know, like they're in a goddamn Royal Rumble. Like how right. does Loki, truly, I'm asking you, how does Loki expect to take over anything if he has to fight people one at a time <laughs> to do it? It's insane. And I also want to bring back my comment from last week. The same with the TVA and the nightsticks and the lamentous security with their nightsticks. Like, guys, it's just getting ridiculous. Like, we're, we're super-powered, cosmic, you know, futuristic societies. Why does everyone have nightsticks? Get out some, like, evaporation rays or something. Get, a, yeah, get something that you could use from long range. It's, it's just insane. Like, what are you guys doing? This isn't, you know, 1700s or I don't know when they use close-up weapons. <laughs> 
Thoughts? So for my Thor The Dark World for the worst performance, I'm going with the lack thereof. And that's of Mobius. No Mobius? Are they fucking kidding me? <laughs> that better be the first and last time they pull that shit. I'm going to have to concur with you on that for yeah. sure. All right, the Mobius Award for Best Performance by Anyone Except the Lead Actor. This I'm, one's Sof- easy now. Sophia Dar- DiMartino as Sylvie. Yeah. I mean, one, she's really the only character of note in this episode, but that's not why she gets it. She's she's sharp and witty. She's wow, sardonic. Wow, I wrote down sharp too. There we go. She's, she's a different but still compelling foil to Loki that forms a unique dynamic I'm interested in. Don't know whether or not they're going romance. If they are going romance, I'm, I'm going to at least allow them the opportunity to convince me because I'm not mm-hmm. as down on it as you are, but I'm not as up on it's it. Just, it's very strange to me. Yeah, I have the same thing. And I, the four words that I have wrote down here are likable, interesting, sexy, and sharp. I feel like she Maybe. nailed all those things as soon as she had her first real scene. For sure. Great call. All right, the Tony Stark Exposition Award, a.k.a. the Star-Lord Who Award for shit we want to explain to us. Uh, I'm going with the TVA composition and Sylvie's overall plan. Last week, you and I said we thought this episode would have a lot of exposition before episodes four and five took off in unexpected directions. And it did. I I would say it turns out this was more of a self-contained meet and greet than a like, here's everything that's coming up. We, we don't really know where it's going from here. Well, we learn her plan uh, vaguely. We learn uh, t- she, We don't know why she wants to fuck over no, the TV. But exactly. we know but she wants to do so because they're not so good. They're definitely not so good, but we don't understand the sp- particulars of that. We don't understand how she came about it or like why she's, she doesn't care about earthlings. I'm yeah. sure. So I'm less concerned or rather I'm less curious about her future and more about her past. I want to know why she resents the name or the idea of Loki so much. Yeah. I think that one's definitely going to be a major plot point. Yeah, for sure. All right. The time stone, that real quick award, AKA rewind that real quick. Again, I, I thought it was a solid climax with the attempt at the one shot. You know, again, you can see where director Kate Heron may have hit a few of those cuts, but overall exciting action packed, you know, uh, in, into that final run. And to me, it felt almost video game mask, Eric, as like a race against time infiltration side quest. So I, I thought it was fun. I actually straight up rewound this because I was hoping to see if the subtitles would translate it for me, but Loki's Asgardian folk song. I rewound that to see if I could dig up sort of what that meant at all. Uh, The only lyrics that I, the only lyrics that they give us are when she sings, she sings, come home. Maybe Lady Loki will follow Loki into whatever reality he winds up in. I don't know, but I I did find that song and just the general tenor of it had a very classic traditional Nordic song that they'd sing at parties or funerals or pre-battle or post-war, just sort of that reverent drinking song. I think you and I need to recruit all of our nerdy friends to go to a pub and then all get drunk and sing that song. Yeah, well, we need to translate it to figure out what the fuck we're saying first. Eh. (laughs) All right, put this in Odin's Vault Award, a.k.a. put that in the museum. Uh, Loki confirmed as bisexual. I thought handled so elegantly, so subtle, didn't take away at all. It was just slipped in there. That's that's how you do it. Yeah, I am going with the lighting on the train and in that alien city the purples and the greens and the pinks or as we like to call around these parts brandon do you know the blade runner 2049 special which was one of her inspirations she said or at least the original blade runner which i'm sure uh, still extends but yeah so that's my i just thought that while i 
wasn't a fan of the CGI. The aesthetic of the world was fucking sick. Uh, the Cap Lifts the Hammer Award for the best hero moment. I just realized in my notes, I actually forgot to do this one. Good, so, Eric, this take it a, away. This is a show that's, as we talked about last week, that's light on traditional hero moments. So for me, I went with when they talk about their moms. Oh, that was good. Loki lets his guard down and reminds us that deep down, he's not a monster. It is actually complicated. And if, and if anything, a very emotional dude. Yeah, he's, well, we knew he was emo. Just look at that hair and that yeah. grin and that gaunt face. Right, and the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and those tight fits of his. Yeah. All right, Eric, what's the worst thing you can say about this episode? Uh, the episode started off strong, but as I said, once they head off to Lamentus, I think it's the worst stretch of the series so far. I think that, but that's more of an indictment of, or more speaks to how good the show has been so far. Uh, not to say that this is bad. I just think coming yeah. off the high of the first two. I, I, I think, mean, I think it's the weakest episode of the bunch so yeah. far. And I, still and like I think it. more so than the CGI or the lack of plot advancement is I think that the lack of Mobius and the TVA hurt. I think that, and then again, this CGI was shoddy. So for me, I think for a time and universe spanning show with such grand ambition, scope and scale, and with only six episodes, I'm not sure it's the wisest idea to have an entire chapter set in essentially one location and timeline. You know, you literally have everything at your disposal. And I think you're restricting yourself a bit by staying quote unquote local even though it's a different planet entirely you know what i mean yeah for sure all right what's the nicest thing you can say about this episode uh loki and sylvie are extremely compelling and that even though their flirtation put me off a bit i am looking forward to seeing these two carry the show forward towards it and towards its end and potentially beyond into a season two which there have been rumors are in the works Uh, And then the score and just the vibe, the aesthetic, the tone remains so on point. Even when this show isn't acting like itself, it looks like itself. And I think that and it sounds like itself. And just I know vibe is a very sort of like stoner bro (laughs) word, but it's true. The vibe of the show, that's a multiple factors that contribute to the to the feel of it. And that remains on point. Uh, So for me, I'd say it's an easy to understand episode. Planet blown up, gotta get out of (laughs) here. And while doing that, it amounts to our two leads exchanging fun and informative banter. So I was like, you know what? I'm on board, even if it's not earth shattering. Yep. All right, stuff we think is cool that needs mentioning. I just have one because there's no meaning behind it, but I thought it was interesting. The clock artwork that's right outside the elevator, the golden elevator, it reads 11.36.32. And I just rewound and and went to other places. There's never the same time mentioned on on all the clocks. Now, maybe that's just because that's how time works. It's never the same time. But in the TVA, where there there is no time, I just thought it's interesting. And I I thought putting that outside where the, the timekeepers are supposed to allegedly be, I wonder if that has any meaning whatsoever. I will just throw in that when Loki is all fucked up and he's trying to drink more, he pulls the same thing that Thor does and he slams down his cup and he goes, another! That was a great callback when he's drinking coffee. Yeah, yeah. So overall, what, we've got four, five, and six left, right? Yes, sir. Sheesh. Well, we'll be here for each one, guys. So keep tuning in. Follow us at Pod. Leave us the five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. And uh, basically worship us as geek gods. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Glorious purpose. All right, Brandon. Cheers, brother. Peace, y'all. I'm going to make him an office, guys.
My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. 